I'm Jonathan Mosin and this is Mosin at Large, the show that's got the blind community talking. In episode 108, some tools to help out blind podcast creators. Cochlear implants when you're blind and an audio nerd. Blind culture, dating blind, and more. Mosin at Large Podcast. Thank you very much for being back with us this week. Really appreciate it. Gosh, you have a lot of choice. I think I read somewhere recently that uh, Apple has just hit 2 million active podcasts on the Apple Podcasts app. And by the way, while I'm talking about that app, if you are not rocking the beta of iOS 14.5, you will soon get it when it goes gold. And the majority of you who listen to this podcast still use Apple Podcasts. Well, I think actually it's a plurality of people use Apple Podcasts. That is to say, the biggest single podcast client that people listen with is Apple Podcasts. I guess because it's there. I mean, that's the only reason I can think of, because compared to Castro, it really is, in my view anyway, um, a lesser experience. But it's there, you know, nothing to download, nothing to pay for. And one thing you will notice, there are quite a few changes in the podcast app in 14.5. The biggest one is that they now talk about following a podcast rather than subscribing. And I think that makes sense because a lot of people associate subscribing to something with paying. And Apple's obviously twigged to that. I think that's really sensible. So as of iOS 14.5, you will now be encouraged to follow a podcast. You might want to bear that in mind if you are a podcast creator and are doing a promo for your podcast. And that segues me very nicely into what I wanted to tell you about before we get into things proper today. Thank you very much to everybody who has so kindly followed me on Clubhouse. I hit a thousand followers yesterday, much to my surprise. So it's really great to have that community building on Clubhouse. And I'm enjoying Clubhouse very much as I get the mix of people who I'm following right and I get the content that I want. I really am digging it. It's a lot of fun on Clubhouse and very informative and great for just meeting new people and expanding your networks as well as maintaining your existing network. On Clubhouse, I set up a club called The Blind Podmaker. And even before that, before I set up that club, I was hosting something called The Blind Podcasters Roundtable. And just because Monday's busy for me in my day job, that happens at 7am New Zealand time on a Monday, whenever 7am happens to be. And with all the changing time zones, the clocks going forward and back and all that malarkey, it is moving about a little bit. But 7am New Zealand time on a Monday. Now we have the Blind Podmaker Club Room, where others who are in this space, who create podcasts, can also create rooms on Clubhouse and talk about the process of creating podcasts, everything from interviews to the technical side, marketing, anything really from a blindness perspective. As a result of that, we're expanding the whole blind podmaker community in really exciting ways. The first is that we now have an email discussion group for the blind podmaker. So even if you are not on Clubhouse, perhaps because you're using Android or you don't have a smartphone at all, and you would like to be a part of the Blind Podmaker community, whether you are a podcast creator who is blind or low vision right now, or you would like to create a podcast and want to know where to start, 
then you can subscribe to this email list. And to do that, you send a blank message to creators-subscribe at theblindpodmaker.com. And the Blind Podmaker is all squished together, no dashes or anything like that. So that email address again, should you wish to subscribe. Remember, this is for podcast creators, not podcast listeners. We may get to a Blind Podcast listeners group soon. Creators-subscribe at theblindpodmaker.com. We will also be bringing you a Blind Podmaker podcast very soon, where we hope to have one place for resources on creating podcasts when you're a blind person, because it is so easy to go down the rabbit warren of trying tools only to discover that they're not accessible. Why reinvent the wheel if somebody's done that for you, if you can go somewhere and find out? First, if a tool is actually accessible, and second, how do you use it with a screen reader? So we are going to publish the Blind Podcasters Roundtable Sessions in the Blind Podmaker podcast feed, but we hope to do much more than that. A lot of tutorials, demos, that kind of thing. Now, that podcast is not quite ready for me to tell you about yet. I'm working with a graphic designer on a cool logo for the Blind Podmaker. When we've got that sorted out, I will tell you more, hopefully, by this time next week. So it's all happening. Now, as part of all of this initiative, the Blind Podmaker Community Initiative, we are going to have a go at providing a way for blind podcasters to cross-promote their podcasts on other podcasts. One of the biggest challenges with podcasts, in my view, is discovery. And this problem affects both listeners and creators. It can be hard if you're a new creator in this space to kind of get the word out that you exist and you're doing a great job and this is what you offer. And obviously, one of the advantages that I have is I've been, I feel like Barry Manilow, I've been alive forever. So, you know, it's a recognizable name and brand in this space. But there are a lot of podcasters doing cool stuff. And it would be good for those of us who are more established to give them a bit of exposure. Plus, it will give listeners the chance to learn about other things that might interest them. So we now have this tool where blind podcasters can create a promo of no more than 60 seconds in length and share that in a shared Dropbox that blind podcasters can join so that promos for other podcasts can be played on their podcasts. And it works on an honesty system. In other words, if you are a blind podcaster and you submit a promo to this thing, it is expected that if you want other people to play your promo, then you will play other people's promos, right? That's only fair. And that's the way the system has to work. So we're just getting that off the ground at the moment. We'll see how many people want to do this. And if you're interested, then we are discussing this on the Blind Podmaker email group. Remember that email address to subscribe to that email group is creators-subscribe at theblindpodmaker.com. So that's all very exciting, just basically helping each other out as blind podcasters. Careful, careful. There's a window there. Careful. There's a window. We need to get up to the top of Mosin Towers, for goodness sake. Oh, there's a door. There's a door. Go on, go on, quick. Oh, God. Oh, Oh, my God. Stuart, we're in. There's a Braille note, M-Power, and a Pac-Mate Omni over here. I'm taking that Pac-Mate. You look for a record player. 
William Shatner's greatest hits. Ah. I'm, throw that out the window. Right, here we go. Hello, Wordline Guys chat. And if you want an hour of fun chat and sometimes ridiculous conversation once every two weeks, then give us a listen. Remember, Blind Guys chat wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, quick, I hear somebody. Let's leg it. Where, where's my cane? Jonathan Mosin, Mosin at Large Podcast. I'd like to tell you something now by playing you something. But before I do that, I want to give you a bit of preamble and context. Mushroom FM, I think, is like a family. Our listeners are like a family. You know, we have people who get in touch with us really regularly and we get to know them. And when there are tragedies or difficulties, sometimes we find out, sometimes somebody will write in and say, play a song because this happened to me or whatever. And we get to know our listeners. We're kind of small enough to be able to do that, which I think is really good. The other thing is that internally, Mushroom FM is in incredibly good shape. I've been involved in a lot of these internet radio projects, and some of them are full of drama and animosity. And the older I get, the more I realize that's just part of life, isn't it? Because you can't do radio unless you've got a bit of an ego. You know, if you're going to sit down in front of a mic and talk to the world, (laughs) you've got to have a bit of that going on. So I get that. But the turnover, in other words, the number of people who come and go from Mushroom FM, it's incredibly low. When you look at the lineup that we've had over the last five years or so, it's been incredibly consistent. And I'm really proud of that. I'm proud of the people that we work with. We're all volunteers. No one gets paid for doing this. You know, it's a a labor of love. And so if there is a lot of animosity and drama, You can understand why people just walk away and think, why am I doing this? I can do better things with my life. So the fact that we do have that culture at Mushroom FM has made it an absolute joy to do with listeners who are so supportive and a great team that looks after each other. Then it's it's wonderful, you know. So internally, something is happening to one of our Mushroom FM family members at the moment, one of the fun guys, and he's somebody who's more than just one of the fun guys, as as we all are, of course. But you will remember the snowman, maybe, if you've been around a while, from the days of the snowman radio broadcast, which was a very clever, intricate piece of production that began in, I think, the late 1990s, if I'm getting my dates correct. Uh, the snowman has also contributed a huge amount to the Jaws scripting community. He's still doing things like the Soundforge scripts and the Reaper scripts, and he has done a lot of music, very good music as well. What are all these things that I'm telling you about him have in common? They are audio-related. And uh, so I want to play you this segment from his radio show from last Saturday, and then come back and make some more comments. We're going to discontinue our live broadcasts here for a time. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to do that. Um, stuff is going on with me, and I wanted to talk to you about it a little bit before we actually do it. Um, if you've been listening to the program for a reasonable time, you know that I've had a lot of trouble uh, with my hearing of late, um, to the point that my left ear has just gone completely dark. I can hear bass and drums, but that's about it. Um, I can't understand any words through it. It's it's like uh, 
It, it's like listening when somebody has put a really thick pillow over your head and held it down tight. So, yeah, I can't understand anything through that. And uh, we went to, to have it looked at and evaluated, and they, they tell me that the only thing they can do for me is a cochlear implant. And while I've never wanted to do that, <clears throat> um, there are a lot of reasons why that's uh, kind of a a crude approximation of hearing, but at least you can understand words, and that will help me a lot. It's getting to the point where um, it's a struggle just to sit across the table and talk with uh, with the wife, and I don't like that. So uh, anyway, we're going to go do that, and uh, that will happen in a week or so. And then the other ear will stay the way it is for now until it degenerates and we have to do something there. But for now, it's just the left ear. There's some possibility that they can retain the lower frequencies. And then I would have kind of a, a hybrid solution where the cochlear does the, the higher part. And uh, then it's just a regular hearing aid that aids the lower part. And But we don't know how well that's going to work out. The uh, technology is not quite precise enough to be able to target exactly where the uh, what frequency the changeover occurs. So anyway, that's what's going on. And I think after that surgery, for about a month, I'm going to be a largely monaural person functioning with one ear that doesn't work that good either. So I don't think I'm going to enjoy doing a program at that point. I don't really even know if I ever will enjoy doing a program again. It's possible that I won't. And uh, I need time to decide that. And I need time to recover. So we're going to go off and do that. And so during the month of April, and um, an indefinite period of time. We're going to go back and rerun some of the older shows that are kind of like this. You, you may not know the diff, except that, of course, the, you know, there's a lot of here and now aspect of this show. And so you'll be hearing history about the 25th of July when it's actually the 14th of March, that kind of thing. But you can deal with it. You'll get by with it. You'll hear about the weather at a time that's not here and now. And I can't realistically go back and carve those up and get rid of that. So I'm not gonna. So we'd be doing that. Um, while those shows are running, I will actually be here. Just not, uh, not talking. I might sound horrible to myself. I might not like it. Music might sound horrible. I don't know. I just don't know what I'm dealing with exactly. And uh, But I'll be here and so I can type at you. And if you tweet me or write email, I will uh, be responsive. My plan, if I uh, manage to accomplish it, would be to uh, make a series of informal audio recordings about the nature of this experience and this adventure. And uh, the first one would be uh, recorded before I do it, and it will be well, the longer of the, of the series, and it'll talk a lot about uh, how hearing actually works and how we convey speech from one to another. Uh, really kind of down to the, the, the technology of it, not the devices, but the way 
the way signals work and what's broken uh, about my particular hearing. Because there are a lot of hearing conditions that, uh, you know, relate to sensitivity. And people think when you have a hearing impairment that they need to yell at you to be louder. But in my case, that's true. There was a loss of sensitivity, but there's something more going on that can mean that you can hear people, but you can't understand what they're saying. And I can explain uh, a lot about why that is and how Cochlear would be expected to address that. So that'll kind of ground you on the technology of it and the physiology of it, at least from uh, from the perspective of what I know. And then uh, the subsequent recordings will be, well, hi, here I am and here's how I'm feeling today kind of deal. So you can... Those of you who are interested in that can know uh, how it's going and what I'm learning and what I'm discovering and what I'm running into and, and all of that. So I hope to make it a valuable experience uh, for you to listen to so that if it ever comes that uh, you might have to do that, you kind of know uh, how it how it went. So those will be posted at snowmanradio.com at some point. There'll be a hearing adventure or something like that page and you can keep up to date that way all right all right thanks now as we go out with this show the snowman surgery is coming up in a couple of days and he has started publishing material on snowman radio and what i think is just remarkable is given how much audio means to him he's taking the time to do this education thing to actually explain in very interesting detail, the kind of audiological loss he's dealing with, the way that hearing works, the way sound works, and he intends to chronicle his journey. Now, I've known the snowman for a long time, and, you know, we're like chalk and cheese in many ways in terms of our political philosophies, but we have a lot in common in terms of audio and music and the things we love. What we also have in common is that I also have a degenerative hearing loss and every so often I wake up in the morning and it's like somebody has switched a switch in my ear and so far it's only been one ear at a time where this happens and as uh, Jim says, it's kind of like your ear's gone dark and every time it happens to me, I have to fight back the sense of terror, wondering if it's going to come back this time. And if it doesn't, what will I do? And I know that one of the things that could be in my future is a cochlear implant. And to be absolutely honest with you, it scares the crap out of me because of how much audio and music means. And I know that many blind people will have been in this position. So the reason why I'm including this is first... Just, I think, the community would wish him all the very best as he goes on this journey. So many of us know what audio means to him. The second thing is, I would be interested if there is anybody listening who has had a cochlear implant and wants to comment on what the process was like. Do you feel like you were better off having it? How is music for you? What's your day-to-day socialization like in terms of before and after? 
I think it would be wonderful to hear from people who can share their experiences because I think, you know, perhaps it's cowardly on my part, but it is, it is something I genuinely fear. And I think part of it is the finality of it. You know, there's no going back when you've done this. So please do share, if you wish, your experiences, positive and otherwise, with the cochlear implant. What do you wish you had known that you could maybe pass on? And if you are interested in checking out Jim's journey, then do check out snowmanradio.com, where he will be chronicling that journey. And we wish him all the very best. Hi, I wanted to weigh in on your cochlear implant question. I have had hearing loss all my life, and I probably could have qualified for a cochlear implant much earlier. My hearing loss was stable, but I was always kind of scared off of it because, you know, it's a permanent thing, obviously. So I didn't get it until a couple of years ago. I hope that your expectations are being set whoever's getting the implant, I hope the uh, expectations are being set appropriately, especially in the short short term. It's going to be a process of learning to hear again. Now, your experiences may vary depending on how much hearing you had, but I know for me it took me probably three, four months at least until I really felt comfortable with the implant, and that's three or four months after the um, activation, as they call it, or after I actually got the processor. You'll probably get the processor about a month after you have the surgery. Typically how it goes, at least here in the U.S., I don't know where you're at and where, if it's done differently around the world, but typically here in the U.S., I believe they wait about a month until they give you the actual device and then you start the rehab process. So it's going to be, you're going to have highs and lows, like emotional highs and lows. Maybe even in the same day, you may be able to hear something and think, wow, this is awesome. And then you might be able to not hear something you think you should be able to hear and think, wow, what did I, <laughs> why did I get this thing? As far as music, music for me still doesn't sound quite as good as it was before, but it's definitely tolerable, but that that is the one kind of I don't know about regret, but the one thing that I wish was better was music and how it sounds and stuff like that. I'm not gonna lie about that, um, but overall, I think it was worth it because I can hear things a lot better now, hear speech a lot better. I'm listening to my computer volume at about 22% at the moment, and before, I would have had it cranked up all the way. My right ear, which is the ear that was implanted, has become my dominant ear, which is not what I expected. Uh, my left ear has hearing loss in it too, but not strong enough for them to do an implant, thankfully. Um, so I will probably remain with a single implant in the right ear. Some people, once they get it, they go and get the other ear implanted. I'm, I don't think I'm going to do that. So socialization has gotten better because I'm able to hear better from a distance. 
They don't, people don't have to be sitting right next to me now in order to talk to me, which is kind of nice. Background noise is still a struggle, but I don't think it's as much of a struggle as it was. Thanks so much, Chris. That's Chris Westbrook with his experience. And Rick Roderick writes in, I got a cochlear implant on Valentine's Day of 2007. I only have it in one ear. I have a hearing aid in the other. The surgery is not too bad. It is a general anesthetic and it is an outpatient procedure. There was pain for me, but it was more in the annoying range than anything. I found it a bit hard to open my mouth very wide for the first few days after surgery. I was activated six weeks after surgery. At first, voices sounded like a single sideband radio without the BFO. I trust that you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, that's a great description, and I know that Jim will relate to that too. It is very distorted. However, it cleared up gradually. Cochlear recommends that recipients practice daily. I would recommend newscasts or audiobooks. Listen for a short time and gradually lengthen it. Eventually, you may find that you never want to be without it. Everyone's experiences with CIs are different. However, they tend to work best for people who have heard before and have acquired language before the surgery. You meet that with flying colors. Another advantage is that with my Nucleus 7, I can connect it directly to Bluetooth and listen to BARD, our TV app or one of the radio apps. Music is difficult. Some works well. I can listen to some oldies without any trouble. However, much classical music gives me fits. Instrument pitches sometimes sound muddy. Hi there, Jonathan. It's Paul Miliarelli in Boulder, Colorado. Checking in. Uh, yes, we're doing uh, we're doing fine here. The uh, the grocery store uh, incident was our grocery store, and uh, uh, of course lost uh, several uh, familiar people and all that. But we are okay and doing well. Cochlear implants. Okay, here we go. I'm uh, blind since birth and had onset hearing loss starting at age 10. Over the years, to the point where I had residual hearing, I graduated from uh, two more powerful and more powerful, ever powerful hearing aids. I always wanted implants. I wanted to have them uh, as soon as I heard about them and did my homework accordingly. I had a 15-year battle to get tested properly and to know that I could finally have them as my last resort. We've learned many things over the years. We know that all cases are different. Uh, there's no right or wrong answer. And we've learned, of course, that everyone needs to be treated individual. Uh, as much as there are guidelines, we must take into consideration individual scenario. There are no right or wrong answers for doing it on your approach. Sometimes it can be frustrating when people get their first throw the switch and they're like, ah, I don't like it. And they say that after 30 seconds and then they shelve it and they don't want to give it a chance. Well, 
you've decided to take the plunge and do all that resource and make the effort and uh, use what resources you had, give it a good chance and have fun with it. It's everything I ever, ever, ever wanted. Um, And it is just, it's a thing. Of course, it's not a cure-all, of course. But you let your brain meld alongside the technology, and it can sound as you want it to sound. It, to me, I I feel like I am restored back to where I was before onset hearing loss when I was 10. When people ask, how's it going at any time? They say, how's it going? And I say, it's going as it should, because that is the answer. People are naive, and and sometimes friends and family, of course, are well-meaning, and they say, oh, you're not hearing well. They shouldn't have touched it. Hey, they tweak, and they can tweak, and they do it, and it works and can work really well. The therapy, audio therapy, do you practice in sound, be it music? Music is doable, and if you've had that exposure and memory of environment beforehand, that's way helpful and way cool, of course. But do your audio therapy. It can be fun. And there's so many resources nowadays. Blindfold games, audio games, games to practice some location and relearn things like that. You know, when you wear something on both sides, if you can, a headphone or whatever. It's so much fun, and it's just that, fun, and can be. And don't give up. Go for it and do it. And and lots of luck, you know, to anyone who's getting their implants. I have two, and it's everything I ever, ever, ever wanted. What's on your mind? Send an email with a recording of your voice or just write it down. Jonathan at mushroomfm.com. That's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N at mushroomfm.com. Or phone our listener line. The number in the United States is 864-60-MOSIN. That's 864-60-667-36. Mosin at Large Podcast. Hi, Jonathan. This is Allison Fallon in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I really enjoy your podcast, even though a lot of it is way too technical for me, but I do enjoy it. I wanted to comment on today's podcast about the blindness culture. I'm not proud to be blind. I'm blind and, you know, that's just who I am, but I wouldn't say I'm proud of it. The other thing I wanted to comment on was the whole thing about mentally retarded. I certainly think that when teenagers say, hi, retard, I mean, that's awful. But I don't see why it's wrong to say he's mentally retarded. Because retard means you slow things down, and he's mentally slow. 
Now, of course, I, I use developmentally disabled, which is what we use in America. I don't know what you use in New Zealand, but I've never understood why that has to be. And, and there's so many things that they, they being the news media or people in general, um, I've heard differently abled, which I think is ridiculous. And um, I forget what some of the handy capable, and I think those just make me cringe. But I was thinking about that today because someone came over to cross out some addresses on packages I'd gotten from Amazon so I could throw the boxes. And I don't know her super well. She's a neighbor across the street. And she said about, I never quite know what to say because I don't like to use the word see. And I said, I use it all the time. There's no reason you, you can't use it. Um, and people will say, oh, do you watch? I mean, do you listen to TV? And I don't understand that. So as she was leaving, she said, well, I'll see you later. I said, okay, I'll see you later. So she got the point, I think. Always good to hear from you, Alison. Thanks for calling in. As far as I'm aware, there is widespread agreement among people with learning impairments that the term retarded has outserved its use-by date, particularly because it has been used by so many people as a pejorative. You know, it's really a horrible word. And that's just the way that language evolves, isn't it? So in the 1960s, most African-Americans did not use the term African-Americans to describe themselves. Um, most African-Americans use Negro. And if you used that term now, you would be considered well and truly out of touch. And that's happened because African-Americans have decided that they want to be called either black or African-American. And so I think in the end, the decision has to belong to those affected. And there does seem to be a really widespread consensus around that. I believe that words really do matter. You know, we've talked about this. Uh, you may not have been listening when we had a long conversation about word usage and things like that, but it really does trouble me. And I believe very sincerely that constant pejorative use of the word blind really is damaging us. It reinforces negative stereotypes of what blind people can do of how we function, and that translates into difficulty obtaining work because people just can't get past it. So those words do matter, I think. And in the end, I think we need to be guided by the minority or disadvantaged group that's being described. Here's Julie McCullough, who says, I really liked the discussion with Amanda. She seems to be a very cool lady. She is, yes, and a great mum too. I don't quite know how to say this, but I think that there can be some unique differences between cultures of blindness, deafness, and some other cultures that may not be as present in ethnic cultures. For example, even though some of us may share in traditions of our families of origin, some of us may feel less of a sense of belonging, even in our own families, than people who share ethnic cultures. This may be especially true for people who have attended schools for the blind or schools for the deaf. I felt that some, even though I went home almost every weekend. Sometimes I just couldn't seem to connect well either place, and for a while, 
my parents didn't particularly want me to connect much with other blind people. Even though my mom was my favorite person, I felt that it was hard for her to understand that I didn't think I could ever be equal to her because of who I am. She did her best to make me feel that I belonged with her, and I usually felt that I belonged with her more than I did with most people. I was very interested in the discussion about blindisms. I have a few in my life. I've wondered why they seem to be universally the same among those of us who have had them. I could never identify why I did them. They just seemed to happen automatically. Even when I thought my brain was fairly stimulated, they still happened. Those of us who have never seen can't begin to imagine the extra and constant stimulation that vision must add to the brain. However, I wonder if that is all of it, because it was pointed out by someone that people with autism also have some unique mannerisms, and many of them have the stimulation of vision. I've wondered at times if I would have been diagnosed with some form of autism if I had been born at a different time. I've never seemed to be able to respond to some kinds of situations in the ways that I've seen most of the people around me doing, especially situations relating to emotion and closeness. I don't know how much some of these things have been studied. I haven't really heard much about it over the years, and as a child, I didn't seem to know how to say that the things I was doing weren't things that I was doing on purpose. I was aware that I was doing them and that I shouldn't be, but it seemed that I was doing them again before I realized it. I can handle myself pretty well in public situations, but I have to be very careful if I am very nervous, very upset, or very angry. I think that the fact that some of these things are so universal deserves some study. Thanks for inviting Amanda for this discussion. I thought she had some good things to say. Thank you, Julie. Here's Matt Campbell, who says, Hi, Jonathan, your conversation with Amanda about blind culture, whether we let our blindness define us, and blindness as a negative versus a characteristic, got me thinking about my own attitude towards such things, particularly when I was in high school. I'm reminded in particular of a memory I have from back then. The local radio station I used to listen to would sometimes air an advertisement for our local non-profit organization for the blind and visually impaired. The ad was very brief, but I recall that my reaction as a teenager was basically, don't remind me. At that time, I was the only blind or visually impaired kid at a small private school. Throughout high school, I rarely had any contact with other blind kids. I had O&M lessons once or twice a week from the O&M teacher in the public school system. So I suppose the only conversations I had directly about my blindness were about the O&M and independent living skills that I needed to learn. And being a nerdy teenager, my reaction to that was basically, yeah, whatever, I'm having way too much fun on the computer. So I think I did view my blindness as a negative that I'd rather avoid dealing with. At the risk of overanalyzing, I think one of the things that drew me to spending so much time alone in front of a computer was that it was a place I could go to try to ignore the elephant in the room, so to speak. Yes, I had to read the computer screen up close back before I had access to a screen reader at home, 
No, I wasn't playing video games or looking at graphics on the web like my sighted peers. So, in a way, my difference was still staring me in the face, but still, I got to do something I enjoyed. And once I got online, I got to spend time with other people, mostly other nerds, without my blindness being the thing that everybody immediately noticed about me. My attitude began to change when I crossed paths with a blind person online, not someone my age, and she was and is totally blind, unlike me. But as I got to know her, and don't read anything into the gender, I started getting interested again in the field of assistive technology. Being in a private school with no resources for blind students, I hadn't had any exposure to screen readers for a few years. So when I found out that my new blind friend used Windows, I was fascinated. This was 1998. Then learning about the challenges she had, particularly since she was stuck with the ill-fated ASOS screen reader, made me want to focus on assistive technology in my programming work. You could argue that my particular focus on the Linux command line interface was misguided, and in retrospect, I'd agree, but that's another discussion. This leads into the topic of whether and how much we let our blindness define us. I suspect there's a stereotype that blind programmers focus on accessibility, and if so, I've definitely reinforced that stereotype. But why shouldn't I focus my work on something that I care about and find worthwhile? I do have other interests related to programming, and my comments on programming-related message boards reflect that. So I don't see anything wrong with being another blind programmer working on accessibility. By the way, on the subject of terms like blind versus visually impaired or low vision, You'd notice that I've identified as blind several times in this message. I've become more comfortable in recent years simply saying I'm blind. Part of it is just practicality. If I'm calling an Uber and I want to send a message to the driver to explain why I need them to look out for me, I can be more sure that I'll get the point across if I just say I'm blind, particularly if there might be a language barrier between me and the driver. But also, I realize that in many ways, I'm more like a totally blind person than a sighted person. So I don't want to seem overly sensitive by using a clunky phrase like visually impaired rather than the simple word blind. At the same time, I'm not entirely comfortable just using the word blind in all circumstances. If I tell a sighted person I'm blind, they might then be confused when I use my limited sight to help me navigate or I might need to clarify that I do have a little sight, and I often use it to read the computer screen. So while I hate to get hung up on choice of terms, it does seem like it actually matters. I'd be curious to know what any other low-vision partials listening to the podcast think about this. Anyway, your discussion with Amanda today was great. Keep up the good work. Hey, Jonathan, it's Mike Fair. I've thought about this over the years, on and off. And I've I've kind of remained lukewarm to the idea of a separate blindness culture. I think there's enough to say we have a community. Uh, You know, we can have different towns with a few different customs uh, that people will live in, but they still would be considered part of Canadian culture. And I think that's kind of how 
blindness operates. It forces us to, you know, have a group of different experiences, different uh, hardships and possibilities that predisposes us to be interested in in similar things. But beyond that, I, I think we're too wedded to our parent cultures to really have our own blindness culture that would just exist for the simple fact of, of us being blind. Uh, I'm not sure that's really been demonstrated to happen. Uh, I, I don't think we have enough material to sort of make a shared history, a shared sort of set of firmly held beliefs, you know, customs, customs perhaps. But even there, I would be very surprised if even some of my better blind friends that are close by would would do things in exactly the same ways that I would necessarily. There'd probably be more difference, you know, than I would even expect. So, yeah, I, I think, yes, there's a blind community, but that's different than the level you'd need to to have an actual blind culture. Hey, Jonathan and everybody. Thank you so much for starting this topic. I have a lot to say about it. It has really made me think very deeply about this subject. So here we go. I'm going to read this off my Braille Edge with a capital B. Ask your assistant of choice what culture means, and you will be told that a culture consists of the norms in all spheres of life of a people group, nation, or of a social group. I have always been against the terms community and culture when used to describe a group not living in a geographical area since, as Michael Jackson said, we are the world. However, further thought has brought me to the conclusion that yes, we are global, meaning we are all human, but there are differentiations in people's lifestyles and norms, thus in cultures. Therefore, the word culture is relevant to a nation, but I wonder if the degree of relevance of the term depends on how strongly the cultural norms of a certain group are adhered to and what the consequences are if adherence by individuals is not what the social norms dictate as necessary. The Amish culture is extremely strong since norms and consequences of disobedience are strongly enforced regarding church members. I am not sure if disabilities have different cultures which their members have formed or if ideas about disabilities stem from national cultures. This raises the question of whether different nations really have very different cultures generally. For instance, Asians, Hispanics, and Italians have always been regarded as being more family-oriented than our other cultures. Is this a stereotype, which, by the way, means an oversimplified idea without a value judgment regarding if stereotyping is right or wrong? It is my opinion that a stereotype comes from some germ of truth. Otherwise, there would be no way for a stereotype to form. There are no grounds to suggest strong adherence to certain ideas or strict consequences of nonconformance regarding disabilities. The ACB and the NFB have differing blindness lifestyle conceptions and procedures generally, but not every blind person is a member of either organization, let alone being in agreement with part or all of each organization's foundational ideas. The book entitled Forward Together by Christie, C-H-R-I-S-T-I-E, Bain, B-A-N-E, available on BARD and I believe also on Bookshare, 
wonderfully describes the training and lifestyle surrounding dog guides and handlers, also stating that many blind people do not choose to use a cane or a dog, but prefer human guides, since independence is not viewed by these people as being important. The only consequence for that choice by my parents and by me has been some verbal disapproval from some blind and sighted people, which has never been a big deal, as I am comfortable in my skin and I am living the life I want, which, ironically, is one of the NFB's main organizational constructs. It seems that, especially in developed nations, individualism and competition have taken root instead of cooperation and helpfulness. The Amish care for their elderly and ill members, helping their neighbors often, and covering severe expenses via the church instead of via insurance. I think that blind, gay, or other kinds of pride stem from how undervalued these groups, and therefore individuals, feel in societies at large, bringing about fear of complete irrelevance for these individuals and groups regarding attitudes of societies, which also brings about individual and group insecurity. It is possible that the above scenario arises from even loose-knit norms promulgated by even one subgroup of, say, the disability population. Banding together provides a feeling of protection, a bulwark against perceived, perceived dangers posed by societies. The hatred against racial groups and the rampant disunity of people and political parties today may stem from such insecurities. Honestly, I have no conclusion to this discussion, as there are so many layers, like a huge chocolate cake, yum. Again, Jonathan, I appreciate you bringing up this intriguing topic, and I am extremely interested to see what you think and what our fellow listeners think. Hey, Jonathan, this is John Wesley Smith from Missouri. Interesting discussion about blind culture. The question that comes to my mind is, how do sighted folks see us? Now, maybe I'm mixing stereotypes with culture, but how many times have uh, you talked to someone who assumes that all blind people read Braille, or they're just totally mystified by the technology that we have because it's foreign to them, and, and thus, by way of assumption, they would perceive that we have a culture or a different way of doing things or, or whatever. And an anonymous contributor who wishes to remain anonymous <laughs> says, Your talk with Wife 1.0 was amazing. She's got such deep insight into blindness issues. See what I did there. Yeah, 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 very good. I think it's super cool that you two have so much in common, not just your children, of course, but your empathetic viewpoints towards disability and disability culture. I hope you and Amanda and Bonnie and your children have many deeply intellectual conversations like this in your future that you will share with your listening community. I think it's important to share complex topics like this with our spawn. (laughs) Awareness is the key to positive change, in my humble opinion. I'd really enjoy hearing more from the perspective of your children. I try to learn from my children as much as I can tolerate. It's a mixed blessing to be a good listener and deeply empathetic and totally out of touch with modern societal issues, while still appearing like I understand what a young human deals with nowadays. Well done, mate, says Anonymous. 
David Kerr writes, I recently listened to your podcast on blind culture with a capital B. That's interesting, just like deaf culture has a capital D. And had a few thoughts. In comparing possible blind culture with deaf culture, there are three elements of deaf culture that I don't believe apply to blind folks. One, deaf culture does not want any research into preventing or curing deafness. As an example, they are opposed to research into cochlear implants, which, when implanted early enough, can result in essentially normal language for the implanted child. In fact, some of the more militant members of the culture refer to that kind of research as genocide. 2. Members of the deaf culture want their children to be born deaf so they can be part of the culture. 3. Members of the deaf culture do not see deafness as a disorder or a bar to communication. Rather, they see sign language as another form of communication, in fact, another language. Admittedly, these are the more militant members of deaf culture, but it is hard for me to imagine blind people feeling the same way about blindness in themselves or their children. Thanks, David. We are going to talk about one of your points very shortly, because I wrote a blog post about why I am excited about the possibility of having blind grandchildren. Should it happen, I'm really looking forward to having a blind grandson, and it would be a grandson specifically, and I will talk about that probably next week or very soon thereafter, so it'll be interesting to get your thoughts and the thoughts of others when that discussion comes up. And Dan Tarreld is writing in, Hi Jonathan, I'm glad you raised this topic. I do believe there is a blind culture, and some good aspects of it are being lost. A prime example is the lack of Braille with an uppercase B, music instruction. There was a time when there were many famous blind musicians, especially organists in France. I'm not sure why some blind people chose to study and play the organ, but I suspect it has to do with the fact that Louis Braille invented the Braille music code and played the organ. Sadly, this culture is being lost. I don't know what can be done, considering the fact that music education in general has disappeared from schools, and there is a shortage of Braille teachers. It is ironic, considering the fact that technology has made it possible to easily create music scores. Thanks for that, Dan. Here's extracts of quite a long piece. I don't have time to read it all, but it is interesting from Mike Cole, so hopefully I've been able to capture the essence of what he's written. Amanda is sure fun to listen to a very smart person with much insight. We can catalogue our differences with sighted people to see if the differences on our side add up to a discrete grouping worthy of the word culture or not. For example, the way we interact with sighted people helps define the differences between us. We as blind people refuse help that is freely given because as blind people we might suffer an excess of pride over our independence. The game of goal ball is scaled to a radius that matches hearing, not vision. Blind people worry over their independence and try to structure life around the use of help and the removal of the need for help, and while other people do that too, I think we devote more time and effort to it than others. Even if we're the only blind person around, I contend we still adapt a lot. Our own apartment complex might be highly unfriendly for us as blind people. Places where you can bang your head, 
landscaping where you have to hit a pathway precisely. Guide dogs come in handy when those kinds of barriers complicate walking around. A culture based on our needs to adapt, so we adapt more than others. Does that make a definable culture? Here in the US, the topic of culture comes up a lot because we are so burdened by our rather checkered past in the attempt to sort out a very non-homogeneous nation. We can argue total blindness versus low vision, and people who say, I might be a lot of things, but until the lights go out permanently, I'm not blind, shaking their fist in some sad cases. And the national blindness organizations speak of us as the blind. I knew a blind agency director who spoke of us as, get this, our blind. Organizations have a duty, given that they are organizations, to build membership, to proclaim unity of purpose, conventions and local meetings as promoting us being together in a positive space. But culture? Here's a problem with the notion of blind culture. Not a killer, mind you, but something to consider. There might be common thoughts, and there certainly are notions of aesthetics, preferences, and the subject of humour we share, even when we might not realise it. But we often don't know each other all that well. That is, I once held a nine-month-old totally blind baby. Now, I'm a dad, in my heart, having raised two kids, so holding this little fellow was great. However, there was nothing about holding him that communicated blindness. I gained experience working with people of all ages. I did become a VI teacher, later an administrator for programs serving blind people, so my ability to make a few generalizations improved. I supervised a teaching environment in which we had newly blind adults. Characteristics? Well, among those of us who have always been blind— and those of us who have adopted an appreciation of an alternative sensing adaptation, it could be we constitute a subset within the broad blind community. Shall we call us the adapting and adapted blind? That is, can a term like culture really apply to all of us? The orientation centre crowd enjoyed a diversity of experiences. The early onset blind folks might very well be at peace with blindness adapting, having fun, sharing common likes and dislikes, and the newly blind were supposed to be learning modified skills, but they were also learning blind ways of thinking, which included getting a kick out of auditory, olfactory, and touch stimuli, whose value the real blind people share. Some newly blind people avoided identification with blindness like the plague, and others became zealous adopters of what they thought of as a thoroughgoing blind identity. A problem for blind culture is we are so thoroughly integrated into, well, sighted culture. Our values, our sense of what's appropriate, our aesthetic, our humour is highly integrated into the broad society. What works and what matters, what renders us with the crowd and what can cause us to be left out shapes us occasionally putting us on a slightly different path from sighted people, but whether blindness gives us a culture remains elusive as an attribution for me. Blind people get on the phone and tell each other how much they like the design and feel of objects common to their life's routine. 
There are certain things we all can say we simply know in common. Well, put a point on the board for culture. The sighted people in their lives might not consider tactile design the least bit important. Sighted people can see in such wonderful detail tiny aspects of things, but they can also see all our equipment as generic, things we like, but not at all nice-looking, just functional. In the end, I'm not sure we have all the boxes checked for a sure definition of culture among us. Anthropologists can speak of culture when they're isolated on an island. Everyone is part of that group and their traditions go way back. So family patterns, mating rituals, inheritances, what songs they sing, what religions they practice hang around and cultural characteristics will emerge soon enough for the academic. Blind people don't have generational folklore. Finally, I believe it's best that we project a sense of self-liking, a sense that our ways are not only workable but good. A culture notion is tempting. Amanda's idea is one I have spoken of too. At the proverbial end of the day, though, I don't think our differences and our similarities add up to a culture. Learning to like us for being us might not be culture, but it feels very good. Thanks so much for such a thoughtful message, Mike. Really appreciate that. And I'm going to include this one on the use of the word blind in this section because we did discuss it with Amanda. So Dawn is writing in and says, Hi, Jonathan. On the subject of the use of the word blind, I am really in two minds on this subject. I do think that this word can be used in derogatory form by people who should know better, such as government ministers. But there are some phrases like blind drunk, which I am sure we have all used without even thinking about it. Therefore, I think we can be too precious and demand that these figures of speech not be used. Is it political correctness taken a bit too far? I believe there has to be some middle ground somewhere. Thanks so much for taking the time to write in, Dawn. Really appreciate that. I have to say you've pushed one of my buttons here. You have, with this term political correctness. I'm not a fan of that term because I think it's so often used to just be really belittling and disparaging of someone's views. It's intellectually lazy in my view. And I'm not saying that there aren't people who use terminology that is a little bit over the top or who advocate for the absence of terminology that's a bit over the top. But there has to be a bit more of an intellectually rigorous defense than, oh, this is just political correctness gone mad. I think the modern term is woke as well. You hear woke being used all the time. If people have a problem with it, I think people need to explain why they have a problem with it. For example, where you are in Australia, sometimes I've heard Australians saying, oh, we shouldn't do this thing about acknowledging the first people of Australia's place and affinity with the land. It's political correctness gone mad. Well, that's outrageous, really. <laughs> so people just use it in this really dismissive way to shut people down. Now, let's deal with the term blind drunk specifically and whether that would fit my definition of inappropriate use of the word blind. I'll ask the oracle. I'll ask the drinker here. Soup drinker. What does blind drunk mean? Blind drunk is an adjective usually defined as so intoxicated as to appear to have difficulty seeing. Right, so if you appear to have difficulty seeing, then they are talking about literal 
blindness in that context, so I personally wouldn't have a problem with blind drunk. I did wonder whether the term stems from the fact that some people might think that if you're so drunk, you're stumbling like a blind person. I remember in the 80s, there was a Billy Joel song on the album An Innocent Man called Christy Lee. You can go and listen to this if you like. And one of the lyrics talks about he stumbles like a blind man. And I remember as a kid thinking that is outrageous that that is in a song. But if it's actually about being so intoxicated that you can't see correctly, then that's using blind in the right context, I would have thought. But it's a far cry from that. And as you say, people using blindness to describe ignorance, stupidity. Like the show? Then why not like it on Facebook too? Get upcoming show announcements, useful links and a bit of conversation. Head on over now to facebook.com slash large. That's facebook.com slash M-O-S-E-N at large to stay connected between episodes. There has been much rejoicing at the news that finally HBO Max has audio description, but there's also been some disappointment expressed about the limited release of that. Kathy Blackburn summarizes that disappointment in an email which says, I signed up for CBS All Access when availability of audio-described content was first announced. I was dismayed to find that the only platforms with an AD track were iOS and Windows. I had really hoped to be able to watch Star Trek Picard on my TV via the Amazon Fire TV Cube rather than on my phone or computer. Regrettably, nothing has changed with the change to Paramount+. I'd be interested to know if anyone has found AD on HBO Max using an Android or Amazon device. And the answer, as I understand it, is no. I have seen people tweeting that they are very disappointed that now that HBO Max has the audio description, they can't watch it on their TV, which really is where you want to watch a lot of the content, isn't it? Particularly if it's encoded properly. So if you've got gear to enjoy surround sound or Dolby Atmos and you want the full sensory experience, the TV is where you want to be. I suppose we're meant to be grateful that after all this time, this is happening at all. But the reality is that if sighted people are watching this content on their TV, blind people should be able to do that as well. Let's hope that this is fixed pronto. More about blind dating, or should I say dating blind, really, since blind dating has a particular definition, doesn't it? And as I have promised throughout this discussion, if you want to make a contribution to this and you would rather remain anonymous, I will absolutely respect that. Here's an email from someone who has asked for anonymity. I believe that life experience and circumstances strongly affects a blind person's decisions about and success with dating. As best my family could tell, I was born legally blind, as defined in U.S. law. Based on later contact with the blind community, I suspect that I had a high level of usable vision. I was born and grew up in a rural area where there was no public transit except for school buses for school kids. In order to get the educational supports that I needed, I had to go to school in the next town, over seven miles from where I lived. My family also lived far away from the nearest town, two miles. My choices of hobby in youth and college were not conducive to starting social interactions that could lead to a partnership. A couple of years of youth league full-contact American-style football, 
playing great Highland bagpipes in a youth pipe band for several years and studying a martial art called jiu-jitsu in college after going totally blind. All of these hobbies have really bad male-to-female ratios. In case it is not clear, I am a guy that likes women. The youth activities also happened in an environment that lacked public transit and had geographic distance issues. I now have to bring up a major life-changing experience and the decisions that I made based on it. At age 14, I lost vision in one eye and was told indirectly that I would probably go totally blind at a fairly young age. My best guess at the time was probably somewhere in my late 20s. I also was told to avoid getting hit in the head and falling. I only later figured out that I made the following decisions. Writing them out like I am also makes them seem a lot more organized and coherent than they actually were. I was going to have to go to college to have any chance of a job. I needed to study a subject that had a high probability of hiring blind people. I would get a job commensurate with the college education. The next decision was the most important in shaping my future life. I decided that I would sacrifice everything that I had to reach my education and job goals. This included recreation and social life. To be honest, dating was not even on the radar at this point. I spent the next 16 years reaching these goals. I had to make most of the potential sacrifices to reach these goals. I had to use the same level of commitment as I had used in getting an education and finding the first real job for the first two years of real employment. I finally, at age 33, started research and doing personal exploration for the next traditional life stage of finding a partner. This stage often overlaps college life. It did not in my case. A major part of my research was checking media on the dating scene and expectations. This was in the ancient days when media mostly meant radio, TV and print. The internet did exist but was mostly used in the work environment. I knew that media seriously misrepresented actual conditions, so I verified all of my conclusions against my admittedly limited social network. My personal assessment was that I was generally fairly sociable, but was reserved to the point of being guarded when it came to sharing emotions. The social norm was that men that had my personality were distant, aloof, and for some, cold. Women were, and so far as I can tell, still are, not attracted to men with this type of personality. I also remembered a book that I had read many years before with some statistics on disabled dating that I will detail later. I decided that I was comfortable with myself. I did not need a partner, but having one would be nice. I decided if I ever wanted sexual experience or experiences badly enough that I would seek out a legal full-service sex worker. I would never disclose this publicly because of social shaming and ostracizing. My final decision was to go on with my life and keep the possibility of chancing onto a possible life partner. I would spend no efforts on a life partner search. 
The book that I mentioned earlier was actually a talking book. I probably listened to it in the period between 1978 and 1982. It was a collection of brief biographical sketches of disabled people with interesting careers. The one sketch that I remember was of a wheelchair-using lady sexologist. The sketch included the results of some of her studies. She researched disabled people's success in relationships. Relationship, in quotes, was the euphemism for interpersonal relationships that included sex at the time. Her findings were at best distressing and at worst heartbreaking. Only 25% of disabled people ever had relationships. Women usually followed a traditional dating pattern. Over half of the men resorted to using prostitutes. The studies did go across the then generally accepted categories of disabilities. The rates did not vary much across disability categories. I have done online searches over the years to find the studies mentioned in the book or newer statistics. I have had no success. I have listened to most of the sex and disabilities books in the Talking Book catalogue. They either skip initial contact entirely or suggest the general meeting people techniques given to all would-be daters. What none of them do is give statistics on the likelihood of successfully finding partners. In my finding life partner, for lack of a better term, metric, I decided to use these statistics from that very old book. I could find nothing better. Successful dating is always in part a numbers game. I decided with the data available to me that a life partner search was simply not worthwhile, given the incredibly bad odds. I am mostly content with my decision of 28 years ago not to do an all-out life partner search. I am human. There is the occasional event that will cause some regrets and associated emotional distress. I have engaged in many social and recreational activities since my decision not to do a full-out partner search. So far, no potential life partners have shown up. On value, I am still mostly content with the decision. On a slightly related note, I never regretted my willingness to sacrifice everything that I had to get a college education and a job commensurate with that education. I live in a far nicer place than I could ever afford on public benefits. After my first two years of real employment, I could afford any assistive technology that I wanted. I have done a fair bit of recreational travelling. Perhaps most important to me, I had the money to help my parents when they ran into financial difficulties later in their lives. Marissa is going to talk about dating in a moment, but first... We're just going to talk about assistive technology briefly and then get back to dating. She says, first and foremost, thank you again for a great episode. I wanted to comment on assistive technology. I wish I had access to all the assistive technology programs and devices when I was in school. Back then, it was either large print or braille with an uppercase B or audiobooks. I learned Zoom text basically on my own while in middle school. The youth of today, oh, you sound like me, old. The youth of today (laughs) are lucky 
to have their Braille displays, notes takers, screen readers, magnification software, etc. I wanted to pick your brain. My writing with a pen is horrible. I am used to using my iPhone or computer. My question is, when writing checks for rent, for example, are there computer programs you can fill out all the information like you could use with your bank? I'm in the USA, if that makes a difference. Well, Marissa, I don't know. In New Zealand, we've actually abolished checks or are about to, so nobody writes checks. We do everything with direct transfer from one bank account to another or EFTPOS, the uh, the electronic fund transfer at point of sale where you use your money card. So checks are actually being abolished here. But I have heard of check writing programs in the US. I think APH do one, don't they? Talking checkbook writer, there may be others. You may be able to use Excel as a checkbook register potentially. But if checks are still a thing in the United States and other countries, then maybe others would like to chime in on this subject of check writing. Thank you for raising the question. Now, we are getting back to dating now. She says, another topic of interest. I appreciate people's comments on dating. I personally feel that it's best to be honest about your disability whether it is physical or unseen. It's my same feeling when a person applies for a job. Disclose your disability when you are interviewing. That way, there is no surprise later. Thanks, Marissa. And Addy says, as always, it was fun listening to Mosin. In the latest episode, you mentioned about Zoom fatigue. Well, for me personally, I did experience webinar slash Zoom fatigue. It was moderate fatigue. And today, after a gap of one month, I did attend a Zoom meeting. My organization has discontinued work from home several months back. So I have been physically going to the office. Hence, now I have normal fatigue instead of webinar fatigue. I will also like to mention one thing, i.e. when I was attending Zoom calls on my laptop, I experienced more fatigue as compared to when I attended on my iPhone. Not sure of the reason, maybe the convenience factor. Dating. It was nice listening to different experience of Mosin at Large listeners with respect to online dating. I also agree that it is better to disclose your disability up front. It just makes things simpler. Though not online, but I have enjoyed several dates with sighted as well as blind individuals, though sometimes the level of planning had to be very detailed while dating blind folks. Sometimes this also leads to anxiety. You mentioned that while choosing life partners, it doesn't matter if someone is blind or sighted. You say blindness is incidental. Well, Jonathan, trust me, I completely want to agree with you, but am unable to. What you mention is the ideal scenario, but we do not live in an ideal world. In an ideal world, all sites would be accessible, and so would all apps on any platform. Amongst the blind folk I know, almost 90%, though may have wonderful friendship with other blind folk, do prefer sighted partners. Whether they get or not is a different matter. And even after getting, I agree that this is no assurance of them having a fruitful relationship. Many times, it is not possible to gauge what life has in store for us. I would like to share a few examples. 
This is not something hearsay, but I know all the individuals about whom I am mentioning below. I have two low vision friends. Both of them, to my horror, did not disclose the seriousness of their visual condition to their to-be spouses. Both of their spouses are sighted. Somehow, over a period of time, their spouses accepted them, and one is married for 15 years now, and the other will complete nine years soon. Another of my low-vision friends, suffering from RP, married a sighted lady. At the time of marriage, he mentioned his condition in detail and the fact that he would lose all of his vision over a period of time. A few years back, he became totally blind. Shortly after that, his wife separated from him. They apparently did not have too many differences, but she was kind of not fine with a totally blind person as a partner. This, even though she was aware of everything at the time of marriage. Just imagine the trauma the blind guy had to go through after 10 years of a good relationship with the same lady. Twitter. I know that you use J on your Apple Watch. What is your preferred Twitter client on iPhone? For a first-time Twitter user, would you recommend the native Twitter app or some third-party app? Is it true that since a few years, Twitter third-party clients are not so much in demand as they were previously? I believe it has something to do with push notifications, but I'm really not sure. Well, Addy, let me come back first and talk about dating, because I think this is a really important subject. And I think it does depend a lot on the way that we view our blindness. There is absolutely no doubt that being blind can be a pain in the proverbial at times, but then so can being short or any number of other characteristics. And I think part of this could be cultural. So, you know, I'm very sensitive to the fact that it's not appropriate necessarily for me to sort of extrapolate my views of blindness um, as a New Zealander who has access to certain services and things on somebody who may not, who's from a different country. But for me, there's there's usually a way around things. If you go somewhere and maybe you are having difficulty finding your way in, you know, it's no difficulty to just ask a random stranger if they can assist or something like that. And if you do have a smartphone, you can always rustle up be my eyes, which is available everywhere, and Ira, if they're available where you are. So I think a lot of these challenges are how we choose to approach them. And that's not to say we shouldn't advocate for a more accessible world, and that yes, every app ideally should be accessible, and so should every building. But in the meantime, we make do with what we have, don't we? And that requires just approaching things with a positive attitude and uh, using alternative techniques where we can. Regarding third-party Twitter apps, I really like Twitterific. They've done a fantastic job with that, but they don't do push notifications anymore following API changes. I understand that Twitter may be doing a rethink on API changes and maybe becoming a bit more welcoming of third-party apps, which is a very good thing. But if you're just starting out, I think I probably would say the native Twitter app is your best bet. It does push, you know, it has all the Twitter features. The one thing I really don't like about the native Twitter app is that it's quite hard to resume your place, either in your main timeline or in a list, and just work your way up. Because for me, Twitter is kind of like seeing things unfold in real time. So I could not stand the idea 
of reading tweets in reverse chronological order. It makes no sense to me to use Twitter that way. So that's where I really like Twitterific, because if I've got time for my timeline, I'll use that. But otherwise, I have a priority tweets list, which are tweets that I never want to miss, you know, people I never want to miss tweets from. And Twitterific reliably lets me resume from the last tweet I read and read in chronological order. Now, we are going back to dating. See, people pop in with all these various comments, and we just go with the flow, man. That's what we do now. I feel like we need to have the guy who says, you know, previously on the West Wing or whatever. Recently on Mosin at Large. Yeah, 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 that's it, that's it. We had a guy talking about dating, you will remember, and he numbered all his points very methodically, very systematically, made some pretty broad generalizations, I thought to myself. And then I'm pretty sure it was Andy who commented on this last week. Now, our numbers man, he wants to remain anonymous, and he's written back in reply and still wants to remain anonymous, which is totally fine. And he's got more numbers. All right, are you ready? Number one, no stereotype fits all cases. And the blind husband dusting while his sighted wife is listening to a talking book on his daisy player is a funny and powerful counterexample. I fully appreciate that the stereotypical assumptions in my numbered email don't apply to all or even most blind-sighted relationships. Nevertheless, I think they accurately reflect assumptions most people who are new to blindness would make, and such assumptions are a major impediment to successful dating. And, as shown by your own and other reactions, the stereotypes surrounding a blind person excessively depending on his or her partner, illustrate a valid concern. Two, the stereotype that the sighted wife of a blind man works in a medical or other, quote, caretaking, unquote, profession, probably holds. The sighted lady I got closest to was a medical student. Other near matches were not in such professions, but did have an above-average interest in helping people and contributing to society. Many, including my present blind partner, also hold liberal religious views. I'm an atheist, he says, but I think this is quite a case of opposite poles attract and certain character traits not directly related to blindness. Three. Oh, I wonder how long this numbered list goes on for. Three. In the small number of blind sighted relationships I have observed, I see one partner acting dominant over the other. This definitely does not imply abuse, but I understand the listener comments which hint at sighted men dating a blind woman with the idea that they can control her. In my limited experience, blind wives typically dominate their sighted husbands. (laughs) Blind husbands either attract a woman who dominates them or excessively step in the dominant role. But equality of arms such as we hear in the Bonnie Bulletin, is rare. I readily admit that such positive interaction may be just as rare in sighted-sighted relationships, though. Four, enough stereotyping for today. Hooray! I don't know anything about your relationship with Amanda in the arena is still on my list, if it is discussed there. Yes, it is quite extensively. But if you claimed the divorce didn't hurt at all, I wouldn't believe you. Yet the fact that you still have an animated interview on the podcast, I think, shows a degree of maturity and care 
that most children of divorced parents could only dream of. With parents who are still happy together after almost 40 years, I believe like I belong to a minority group these days, the number of bad relationships and destructive divorces staggers me sometimes. It is inspiring to see couples who can retain a positive and responsible attitude in difficult circumstances. Despite the premature end, your relationship must have been quite strong. Keep up the great work on the show. Thank you so much, Anonymous Numbers Man. It's like the shortwave radio stations of days of yore, you know, where you'd listen in and they'd be doing the numbers. Um, Regarding... The relationship between Amanda and me, yes, I do talk about that quite a bit and in the arena. And of course, the divorce was very painful, particularly given the circumstances. And I think it is great that we have a good relationship. You know, in the early days for the kids, we spent Christmas together and all of those things. So we've done our best. It hasn't always been smooth sailing. But I think when I see the animosity that exists between former couples who've been divorced sometimes... I think we are very lucky. And like you, my parents were married. My mum got married when she was 16. My dad was 21. They stayed married until my dad died in 2017. And they were married for 64 years and were really happy. And it's a beautiful thing, isn't it? It really is a wonderful thing. So I'm so pleased to hear that your parents managed to do that. Just regarding the dominant couple thing, I am not convinced that this is a blindsided thing at all. You often find that one member of the couple is the sort of CEO of the, <laughs> of the relationship. You know, you just have somebody who is the stronger personality and maybe sometimes the person who isn't as strong minds. And at other times, they're quite happy to go with the flow. It's sort of a natural way that the relationship goes. I don't think that is necessarily a blindsided thing. I see this in all sorts of couples, you know, and of course, the old joke is, oh, you know who wears the pants in that relationship. So I'm not sure about that, but very good, thoughtful post. Thank you so much. More this week on the accessibility overlay issue and accessibility in particular, and Ken in Sacramento, California, says, Hi, Jonathan, I originally planned to start this message with an extended plea to Chansey Fleet to step aside, if not completely away, from the accessibility advocacy struggle for the sake of her health. The reporting in your episode on accessibility left me troubled in many ways. I will restrict my observations and comments to three matters directly related to accessibility. I am going to digress from my message to cover some concepts and terms that I believe are not widely used or understood. The concepts and terms are from what I am going to call classical logic. The modern definition of logic is widely different from the earliest, if not original one. I am going to use Wikipedia's broad definition as it is the best that I could find. Logic is the analysis and appraisal of arguments. Classical logic includes a large body of what can be thought of as errors or mistakes in arguments. They are usually covered in what are called fallacies. Many of these errors will begin with the phrase fallacy of... A lot of Latin words and phrases are used in classical logic so I will add translations. The first accessibility behaviour that I find troubling, based on your reporting, 
is how they handle reports of accessibility issues from people knowledgeable about screen reader accessibility. I am not saying that Accessibility is actually doing what I am about to describe, but it looks awfully close. In classical logic, there is the fallacy of invincible ignorance. For the sake of brevity, I am about to oversimplify and skip a lot of transitional arguments. Accessibility has apparently never, never gotten a report of accessibility issues or issues with enough information or details or clarity or precision that they can take action on them. If Stephen Clower's message was not detailed or clear enough for accessibility, what will ever be good enough for them? The failure to accept any information contrary to the individual's or entity's position is the core feature of the fallacy of invincible ignorance. No argument, evidence or data that counters an individual's or company's position will ever be accepted. The second accessibility behaviour that I find troubling, based on your reporting, is how accessibility deals with people with differing views. I am not saying that accessibility is actually doing what I am about to describe, but it looks awfully close. Accessibility seems to be using... Ad hominem attacks. Ad hominem roughly translates to the man or person. In classical logic, this means that a person or entity will not deal with the argument or evidence presented by someone with a differing view in a discussion. They will instead attack the person. Accessibility seem to engage in an ad hominem attack during and since Chansey Fleet's meeting with them. By focusing on Chansey Fleet's use of origami as an example of a problematic use of their software and ignoring and trivialising the requirement to give absolute precision in rendering an origami website to make it effective and suggesting that Chansey Fleet's choice of an origami site as an example is kind of weird and she should be dismissed for that reason is a classic ad hominem attack. Did Accessibility provide an explanation of why Chansey Fleet was wrong about their software creating accessibility problems on an origami site? If they did not, and the problems do exist when their software is used, they are avoiding dealing with potentially valid accessibility concerns by attacking Chansey Fleet. Given the reach of Mosin at large, I am surprised that an American lawyer has not already commented on the American contract law concept of due diligence. I am not a lawyer. My knowledge comes from my initial unknowing experience of being a due diligence compliance officer for a contract. My job assignment was clear and seemed reasonable. What I did not know at the time was that there was a due diligence aspect to the assignment. My understanding is that under American law, an organization cannot contract away its legal responsibilities. The due diligence doctrine is the legal divide used to hold a contracting organization accountable for the services provided in a contract, including the contracted organization meeting the legal duties of the contracting organization that are known by the contracting organization or specified as part of the contract. In the case of a service like Accessibility, the contracting organization has to test to make sure the service works as advertised, and in the case of Accessibility, does actually provide standards-compliant accessibility while not rendering existing accessibility functions inoperable, unless it can successfully take over those functions. 
The due diligence doctrine also requires contracting organizations to continuously monitor ongoing contracted services to be sure that they remain compliant. Kane Broland is writing in. Great to hear from you, Kane. I remember we did an FS cast interview a long time ago now. And he says, Jonathan, thanks for the amazing, pointed and relevant discussions you've been having about recent threats to an open internet and about the various perspectives about service animals vis-a-vis rideshare services such as Uber and Lyft. As always, I appreciate your tackling these hard issues. Like many of your listeners who are passionate about Braille with an uppercase B, I have felt annoyed and discomforted by the inaccessibility creep we see in iOS 14 as it applies to the Kindle and Apple Books apps for those of us who prefer to read books in Braille alone. This is a stark reminder that what Apple giveth, Apple can just as easily take away. To illustrate this point, I am attempting to link some people to a very moving article you wrote a few years ago and that was published in the Braille Monitor. The title had something to do with the hidden cost of a free-of-charge accessibility product. The essence of this article was, be careful what you wish for when you say you are happy with the free accessibility offered by Microsoft, Apple and the like. You warned of where we might suffer as blind people If we choose to relegate blindness-specializing firms such as Vespero to the dustbin of history just because some consider their products to be unnecessarily expensive. But I cannot find this article. Extremely frustrating. Could you please point this out to me? I'd love to bookmark and continue to share this because it is every bit as relevant in 2021 as it was when originally written. Keep up the excellent work, says Kane. Thank you, Kane. I appreciate that. I do write a lot of soup, I suppose, and I don't remember all the soup I've written, but I'm pretty sure that nothing like that was published by me in the monitor. I have a couple of ideas. I did give a speech to this effect at the Blind Citizens Australia conference in whenever that was, I think 2017, possibly. And that is in my blog, so you can look in the blog for that at mosin.org. But if you're absolutely sure you saw this in the monitor, I'm pretty sure you're referring to an article written by Tim Connell, who was, I'm not sure if he still is, but he was running Quantum Technologies over in Australia, a veteran in the assistive technology industry. And I use that term in terms of being very wise and having seen a lot go down. And I do remember an article from Tim Connell that talked about these issues of the cost of free products. So that might be the one that you are looking for. If you search the NFB site for his name, that will come up. And I suspect that's the one you're after. This email says, Hi, Jonathan, please do not read out my name over your wonderful show. I love listening to your product reviews and find them very helpful. In addition, when you have asked for people's experiences and reviews on their equipment, That also has been quite interesting. I am totally blind and wear double hearing aids and am considering purchasing the Orcam MyEye Pro and it costs over $4,000. I was hoping that you would be willing to ask your listeners for feedback on how useful it has been and in what tasks they find it to be most helpful. 
If any of them also happen to be using its feature that lets it speak directly into your hearing aid, so much the better. I would love to hear from other people who are already using it and what they think of it. This could very much affect whether I go ahead with buying it. I hope this spawns much discussion. Me too. I'm interested in this. I read a lot about Orcam. I scan the blindness-related news media stories that come up every week, and Orcam is pretty consistently there. People talking about it. They have a great publicity machine. They seem to be getting a lot of funding, but I've not used one, and I don't know anybody who has for long periods. So if you've got your hands on an Orcam, if you've been funded to get one, or you've invested some of your own change in getting one, How's it working out? Does it live up to the hype? Thanks for the inquiry. I hope we hear from some users. We celebrate people listening to Mosin at Large wherever they like, whenever they like, and some people like to listen to podcasts in Windows. We've been talking about the shortage of good, quality, well-maintained, accessible ways of doing this. Rebecca Skipper writes in to say, Hi, once accessible podcatcher stopped responding, I discovered that you can subscribe to podcasts through VLC Media Player, and there's a URL that she's given there which links to an article that talks about how you go to the view menu, which in VLC is Alt-I, and then you can choose playlists, although the shortcut key, they say, is Control-L to do this. Now, backtracking a bit, for those who don't know what VLC Media Player is, it's an open-source, cross-platform media player I've looked at this from time to time because it's everywhere. You can get it for iOS, tvOS, Mac, Windows, probably Linux. You know, it's all over the place. Not sure if there's a VLC for watchOS. But it plays everything. It's pretty interesting. When I had a look at this, specifically trying to subscribe to a podcast, I didn't find it a terribly accessible experience on Windows. But if anybody's got this to work and are actually using VLC regularly for podcasts, then let us know how you got it to work and what the trick is from a blindness perspective. But the way it's supposed to work is that you bring up the playlist options, and there is a podcast option there apparently, and then you have to enter the feed URL, the RSS feed of the podcast. So using an iTunes link or a Spotify link is not going to do it. We do, of course, publish the RSS feeds URL of our podcast For anybody who's using something a bit unorthodox, doesn't want to be at the mercy of these directories. And you can find that by going to podcast.mosin.org. And there's a full page there for Mosin at Large describing all sorts of ways that you can listen. Podcast.mosin.org. So thanks, Rebecca. If anybody gets this VLC thing working, I would be interested. It is time once again for another exciting installment of the Bonnie Bulletin. Hi, guys. Are you getting confused by the various times in which you are expected to be down here to do this live? Yeah, yeah. On all our channels. Yeah. Yeah, so it is kind of annoying with the the daylight savings time and... See, it's not just one, is it? Because So we started this journey a couple of weeks ago when the United States of America put their clocks forward, they sprung mm-hmm. forward. And that means that relative to the time with America, we start an hour earlier. So it was 8 o'clock, now we start at 7. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the UK didn't put their time forward and Europe didn't put their time forward at the same time. So that messed with the, the times that these shows are on Mushroom FM. And now 
I think the clocks are going back in forward in the Europe and the UK this weekend. And then next weekend, which is Easter, our clocks go, go back because yeah. we've got one of the longest daylight saving time periods in the world. Mm-hmm. So that means that the show will start New Zealand time at 6 a.m. Yeah. on a Sunday. Oh. At least it'll be done by 9, so you'll have the whole day, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I suppose that's right. But there are so many people working across international time zones and things now. It's really got to stop. I just I Yeah, you wonder if they'll take a look at that because you do have, you know, people working remotely and like you said trans I mean, I know people here in New Zealand who came back from the UK during the pandemic and they're still working UK times. Yeah. They're still working for their companies in the UK. Yeah, and so that's changing all the time. Um, and you know, when I used to work for US organizations, this was, this was an issue as well, mm-hmm. of course. So I see there is a petition in our parliament that is currently circulating that says, all right, if we have to settle on one time zone for the whole year round, let's just keep daylight saving yeah. as permanent New Zealand new standard time yeah. and stop messing with the clocks. Yeah. Cause the clocks don't actually change. I mean, the time itself. I used to think that actually something did occur in the, you know, the cosmos when we all did this, but nothing actually, absolutely nothing in the world actually changes. Did I tell you the the story of this somewhat naive personal assistant I had in a job I worked in about 25 years ago? And I was complaining about daylight saving then. And I said, you mess with the forces of time at your peril mm-hmm. because you're screwing around with the fundamental facets of the space-time continuum and really bad natural things can happen. And over that weekend that we moved forward mm-hmm. to daylight saving, one of our volcanoes, Mount Ruapehu, oh, no. erupted. And so on Monday morning, I went in and I said to her, See? I told you that the daylight saving has caused us to mess with the forces of time, and now the, the mountain's erupting. And she said, oh, yeah, we need to abolish this. This is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but for a long time when I was a kid, I thought that something actually happened, and it, it doesn't. So it's just... Yeah. No, no. So time is an illusion. Yeah. Lunchtime doubly so. Mm. Yeah. So, now, my understanding is that they had a uh, petition in Europe... And they've agreed to abolish daylight saving time and do this very thing where they were going to keep it on daylight saving time all year round. But then I think somebody told me maybe on this show that it's got stuck somehow and that that's not happening now or something like that. Timed out. If anybody, yeah, if anybody can tell us from Europe what happened there. But there are all sorts of downsides of daylight saving. Like apparently people go and blind people are very used, well, some of us anyway are, to the whole non-24 thing. Yeah. But apparently sighted people with regular circadian rhythms get, you know, all sorts of problems when they move the clocks forward and yeah, back. Yeah, I know people get in the winter time, which I, I assume has something to do with the daylight savings time, is that whole sad seasonal affective disorder because of the light. Right. Of getting darker earlier or perceived to be darker earlier or staying darker longer or whatever it whatever it does. I don't know. It get, yeah, it gets darker earlier. So basically when you head home from the office or whatever, you're mm-hmm. more likely to be in dark in yeah. the wintertime. And yeah. there are some stats or something that I read that indicate that 
during the week that the clocks are changed, there's an increase in motor accidents and all sorts of other work-related accidents mm, and all kinds of things. Sleepy. You know, children don't understand it. Animals, you know, cows that have to be milked don't yeah, they understand show up. it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it just it's just a horrible thing. Yeah. I just – this is just ridiculous public policy. Yeah, and there are some states in the U.S. that don't adhere to it. Good. So. Yeah, well, that makes it even more Arizona complicated, doesn't Arizona doesn't, it? I don't think, and I think some other places may not. There's a state in Australia that does not. I know that Queensland doesn't, no. and I'm thinking – well, maybe I think I know that Queensland doesn't. Maybe Western Australia doesn't either, if I'm remembering correctly. It must be tough for countries like Norway and, you know, you know, in the state of Alaska where they have this 12 hours of daylight and darkness. I mean, that must be really something. So is there anyone listening to this nonsense that actually likes daylight saving? That's what I'd like to know. And if so, why? You know, this this whole stuff about messing with the clocks. Let's just agree on a time zone and stick to it. It's really disrupting, especially with so many of us working internationally these days. It's really like I tell you a story. Actually, uh, we are working on an interview for Mosin at Large, and when I looked at the bio of this company that I was going to be doing an interview with, it looked like they were based in Boston, Massachusetts. And I think what happened is they were founded because maybe the two people who founded the company, and we will do this interview eventually, were students who were at MIT or Harvard or something like that. But anyway, I inferred, you know what they say about assume, makes an ass of you and me. I inferred that they were in Boston. So I try to be friendly when setting up the interviews and work in people's local time zones. And so I did the interview set up and I said, Let's do the interview at 3 p.m. Eastern time on whatever day it was, Thursday. And I got on the thing and I waited and waited. And anyway, to cut a long story short, this person turned up an hour later. And by that stage, I'd moved on with my life, you know. And I thought, how rude of this person not to even tell me he was running late or anything. He emailed me and said, where are you? Because I'm here. And it turned out that he was not in Boston. He was in Israel and he didn't realize that the clocks had gone forward in the United States a couple of weeks ago. So there I was trying to be helpful and using Eastern time. Neither of us actually were in Eastern time, and we completely missed it because daylight saving had come along. It's, it, you can imagine how many times things like that happen that disrupt business. I hate it. I hate yeah, It's really time. terrible. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, Randover, would you like to review the New Zealand Sympathy Orchestra? Yeah, it was really good. Uh, we went Friday night, and it was Ravel's Carnival and um, Stravinsky's Petrushka and a couple other, I think, more modern pieces that had been recently done. And uh, it was at the Michael Fowler Center, which is kind of our big concert venue. And um, I, th- I think the hardest part was usually at these things you have ushers and, you know, staff. And it was kind of all man for all man for himself on Friday, which was a bit odd. So we, you know, came in, you just walk up and, and give your tickets and couldn't find where the ticket person was. Finally found that. And then we went up some stairs and you assume that someone's up there taking tickets. But no. And uh, so we had to wander around, but we did eventually get to our seats. So that was 
that was good. But, Structured discovery. Yeah, Structured. I think it was for everyone. But um, so. people probably think we just can't win with these blind people because, on the one hand, people can be overbearing, mm-hmm. but then on that occasion, we, we we just would have liked a little bit more direction because this is a massive concept. Yeah, thing, it know. was really <laughs> strange because usually when you're at these things, they have ushers and. I don't know if they just – I think they may rely on volunteers and not actually staff, but it was really, really odd. But it was really good. The sound was, was really good. The orchestra was um, very good. And, um, yeah, so it was a, a really nice night. We have a, a few other uh, – I think five or six other concerts to go to. It was – yes, because we've become a subscriber so that's really nice. And maybe they've given us the same seat. We should check that. Yeah, really. Uh, and, and then maybe Eclipse will get used to, to going where there, we yeah. are. But I find that listening to that kind of music, to, to classical music, does put you in quite a nice meditative state. And suddenly mm-hmm. in the middle of the Stravinsky, I had this massive breakthrough about working clean feed and clubhouse <laughs> in combination. I'm like, sure Stravinsky's very come. happy about this. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so it's very good. It was it was nice to do but that, and then of course, and then of quarter. course, we had another guide dog refusal. Yes, but I've decided to take a whole different approach to this. Th- these days, I kind of feel like I'm doing the world a favor by ridding the Uber platform of these people. So you know, if I get one, I've got the reporting down to a fine art now. They call me every time and have mm-hmm. this little scripted conversation. But then I kind of feel like, oh well, you know, there can't be an infinite number of nits on the Uber platform, so eventually we'll we'll sort it out. Yeah, but you just wonder when they come back. You know, how long they stay off the platform. Yeah, yeah. I th- I think what they do actually is that if you've had a bad experience like that with a driver, they tweak the algorithm so you don't get that driver again. But then the downside of that is. If you get a lot of drivers on the platform who don't know what the law is, you might end up with very few drivers exactly, to choose from. Exactly, then you'd be waiting forever. Yeah. yeah, and then we had cab drivers who were so desperate for work, they're like trying to poach passengers. <laughs> yeah, I know, and it is sad. But I mean, we took a taxi. Where were we? Where we decided that a taxi was easier? Oh, we were in Parliament. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That yeah. was yeah. We we attended the uh, hikoi. Oh, that of was this week. Hope. The of hope. Yeah, the Gosh, hikoi of hope for disabled time. people. Yeah. I am so pleased that this is happening. Uh, that actually we've got to the point where there are significant disability issues that have prompted some disabled people to march on Parliament mm-hmm. and hold a meeting. And it was across the country because it wasn't just in Wellington. They had some up in Auckland and I think New Plymouth and I'm not sure where else. Yeah. So, so it was it was a really good – I got really sunburned because mm-hmm. I burned so easily. <laughs> um, but I'm I'm so pleased. I'm hoping that this marks the beginning of a new era of grassroots activism in the disability I community in New Zealand. I was very disappointed that there were – because I know if this were in the U.S. that when ACB does their, their legislative uh, – the Washington thing, the – um, and NFB, when they, when both, when the NFB is the Washington seminar, seminar and, and ACB is the legislative, legislative seminar. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, so when they do their, their seminars, they meet with the politicians. And this year they, you know, I know ACB did it virtually. They, they both did it virtually. And even ha- I think more politicians that came up, especially on the state level, but there weren't all that many MPs there. And if it was the U.S., they'd be all over the place. You know, you'd have, congressman whoever and senator whoever standing there you know they'd see their their opposition over talking to people and they'd want to get in on the action you know 
and competing for your time, not necessarily us competing for their time. So I was a bit disappointed that but, but there I think, weren't as many I think MPs. putting that in context, though, we have to think about percentages because obviously yeah. the Congress is much bigger. Yeah, I guess that's true, yeah. So, you know, if you if you extrapolate it down to percentages, there may well still be a typically larger percentage in the US. But I think that speaks to just how disability issues here just aren't sufficiently on the radar. Yeah, and, and for most, it's not. I mean, even for US politicians, it's not their highest thing, but they no. still, no, it's, it's, it's not. And, um, not to say that all presidents haven't really done a little bit or thought a little bit about it, but I think the last US president we had that actually was extremely involved in disability issues was Bush first. Well, you can't take the ADA away from him, can no, you? No, Bush he, the first. He got it done. I mean, yeah. Obama had, I, I believe that he was the first to have a a disability advisor or, or you know, whatever that, that title was, but that was only one term. And I've never understood why the person didn't come back in the second term. But um, I know a friend of mine that lives in D.C. said, you know, it's not that the president doesn't care. It's just that it's it's not as important as other things. Yeah. So many yeah. competing objectives. Yeah, exactly. And you have yeah. to kind of call out which objective is the most urgent at that time. So that was a good experience. I enjoyed that. I, I felt quite buoyed by it. was. There were some really, really good speakers that got up there. You know, obviously, I'm biased. Yours was the best. <laughs> but um, there were some really good because you and this is an interesting question because I was talking about it the other day with some blind people who felt very differently <laughs> than I did. But you listen to a lot of those people speak who have other disabilities from blindness and their issues are very, very complex in many ways. Some of them need carers to do the basic things that we take for granted, like taking a shower or getting around because they can't take the buses. They, you know, really have to think about where they go because they, they can't get in places. And you almost feel and blind people have issues, and I'm not saying that we don't because we do, but they're different. Everyone has different issues. And I almost felt a little bit guilty. And I guess it's that same thing with with anyone. You feel kind of guilty about it because my issues are, are nothing compared to yours. But I did feel a little spark of guilt listening to some of those, some of those stories, which – you know, maybe it's good to hear those stories because it makes us think and makes us better advocates for ourselves because disability issues are everyone's issues because eventually if you live long enough, something's going to go, you know, and also a lot of the issues can make it a better world for, for quote, able-bodied people, you know, having accessible, which a lot of the buildings here in New Zealand are horrible even trying to get upstairs in some of these buildings is is difficult without a physical or mobility impairment. The medical center over here in Johnsonville, the stairs are so narrow and so steep. It's it's scary. And, you know, for a mother with a pram or, you know, young children. So but it was it was kind of very thought provoking. Yes, I think disability is something of a uh, 
of an artificial construct for the benefit of public policymakers who just want to lump a whole mm-hmm. group of people together. But although I think the thing that does lump us together is that there are disabling impediments created in society that society actually does have the ability to fix. Yeah. But it was pretty compelling when Huhana Hickey, who organized this protest the other day, made the point that civil rights in the United States really kicked into high gear when Rosa Parks made a stand on the bus, but some disabled people in New Zealand can't even get on the mm-hmm. bus. It was amazing. Yeah, so it was, it was, and that's a long, 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 long segue to get back to Uber to say that yeah. we got a taxi rather than an Uber because we thought it would be a bit easier back home from that. And I was just struck by what an inferior UX the taxi is because you have to spell your street name three times, especially when you've got a street name like ours. You have to pay at the end. With Uber, they have all that data. You just get in the car, they take you there, and you get out, you know. So taxis need to get with the program, dude. Yeah, they try to use their GPSs. I don't know. It's just (laughs) – Anyway. Sometimes you just don't want to talk to the taxi driver. It's like I just want to be quiet. I just want to listen to my music or think. Or yeah, I'm I'm a bit more assertive about that these yeah. days. And say, look, I'm not I'm not talking in the nicest possible way. Yeah, mm. shut mm. up. Leave me alone. <laughs> so next week we will be back with another exciting episode of the Bunny Bulletin, and it will be on at. 8 a.m. 8 a.m. Oh, my on word. Easter Sunday here. See, only two weeks ago it was on at 10. I know. Now on it's on Easter at 8. Sunday. Well. To contribute to Mosin at Large, you can email Jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, at mushroomfm.com by writing something down or attaching an audio file. Or you can call our listener line. It's a U.S. number, 864-60-MOSIN. That's 864-606-6736. Mosin at Large.